Well, it's good to see each of you this morning as we gather again for worship, as Kurt said, and to be in the Lord's house and to enjoy fellowship together, to enjoy worship. Uh, all these things are part of the blessings that we have and enjoy as believers in Christ. Um, I, Susan and I want to say a special word of appreciation and thank you to you guys for the prayers and for the flowers and everything in remembrance of Susan's brother Preston who died on April 21. Uh, we were, a week or so ago, we were up in Virginia for his uh, funeral service. And, um, you know, one of those things about death is it's both bitter and sweet, isn't it? Especially for the believer because we know he's with the Lord. We don't want him back here. Um, but we miss him and we miss the, uh, we miss what he brought to the family. His um, leadership, he was Susan's oldest brother. He was a pastor for uh, 45, 50 years. He was a father, a grandfather, great-grandfather, somebody we loved and appreciated. And uh, just to, you know, to gather to celebrate all that the Lord used him to do in his ministry and in his life with his family. And um, so we give thanks for all that, but yet we miss him. You know, we miss what he was and who he was and um, the things that we all thought about when we were with him. So thank you guys for your prayers and for your encouragement. That's certainly a blessing to us. I'm going to read from the scripture today. I'm going to change the text a little. We're going to go back. Instead of beginning in the middle of chapter 5, I want to begin at the end of chapter 4. So Hebrews chapter 4, I want to start at verse 14 and read for you through um, the fifth chapter, verse 10. So Hebrews 4.14 is where we'll start. And we always remember that this is God's word. This is his truth. This is inerrant, infallible. It's incapable of error because he's given it to us. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. So this has to be the truth. And that's what we rest in. Verse 14 of chapter 4 of Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, 
you were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning, that we can come knowing that you are God, that your word is true, that you've given us your truth and you've called us to live it, to obey it, to walk in it, to be faithful to it. We pray that your Holy Spirit today would bring the truth of these scriptures and others to our minds and hearts, that you would uh, remind us of these things that we've known and heard before and teach us and lead us into all areas of truth. We pray that we will uh, go in the strength of Christ this week and that we will walk with you in everything. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we remember having looked at the book of Hebrews, that the book of Hebrews is a letter. It's, it's a pastoral letter. Uh, it's a pastoral letter from a pastor who's writing to Christians who've been persecuted and who were suffering. And we talked a little bit about the fact that persecution and suffering can often bring on doubt. Um, when you're suffering, when you're hurting, uh, you often wonder, hey, and what I, does what I believe, is this the truth? Is this real? Is this how uh, I am to be? Christians in the first century are no different from us. Christians in those days doubted and feared at times just like we do. But when you have doubts about your faith, what do you do? The last time we were together, I told you a story uh, a little bit about Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a, actually a Christian missionary uh, he was a missionary from our tradition. He was Presbyterian. He was Reformed Presbyterian in those days, Evangelical Synod. He went to Europe after World War II because he was concerned for the status of the faith in Europe. You know, Europe was supposed to be the ground of the faith. You know, there were, Geneva was where John Calvin was. You think of Pharrell and all the great reformers from Switzerland. You think of John uh, Knox in Scotland. Dr. Schaefer went to Europe after World War II to check on the status of the faith, but also to lead people to Jesus Christ, to do Christian ministry and evangelism. Well, when he was there, it, he was beginning his ministry, and he struggled a bit. He struggled with some doubts. And he said, in order for me to be a Christian missionary in Europe at this time and place, he says, I've got to rethink the Christian faith. I've got to go all the way back to my atheism, where he was before he became a believer. He said, I have to start at atheism, and I'm going to work my way through. I'm going to think my way through this to make sure that I have dealt with the faith in a correct way and that I'm where I should be. 
He struggled early on. He walked, you know, I told you, he, he tells the story about the fact that it was wintertime in Switzerland, it was very cold and snowy, and the, he found a warm barn where he could go in and it was big enough for him to go around and walk in that barn all on uh, in the afternoons. And he would pray and walk and think about the scriptures. He struggled early on, but then he came back, you know, and his faith was grounded and he saw where it was. It's interesting, too, that Billy Graham, at the first of his ministry, struggled with doubts. You know, Billy, when he was just starting his evangelistic ministry, he had a period of doubt because he was being challenged by his critics in the culture and in the media. And they said, you know, how can you believe this? Um, how can you believe in Jesus? How can you believe in the resurrection? And they challenged him. How did he know it was all true? Billy struggled for a while. And one of the things that he came up with was he finally came to that place where he realized that if the resurrection of Jesus was true, then the prophecies and the scriptures were true. And if the scriptures were true, then it was all true. And he said, I'm going to rest my faith on the scriptures because I believe it's the word of God and I'm going to rest everything there and take it uh, at, at that value. Billy struggled, Francis Schaeffer struggled. There have been lots of us, perhaps, that have gone through hard times and have struggled with our faith, trying to make sense of it and to understand it in light of the, of the world that we live in. It's not unusual when you're challenged to face doubts. The author of this letter was writing to his readers who were Jewish in background, and he said, I want you to remember what you know. I want you to remember the truths that you know. And, you know, he, he was reminding them that Jesus was the great Savior and Messiah, that he was greater than the angels, he was greater than Moses, he was greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system. So when you doubt, though, he's writing to these people, what do you look for? What do you think about? Now, since these folks were Jewish people, Hebrews, they were thinking about their background and they had a high priest. So what kind of high priest did these believers have? When they became Christians, what did they understand about Jesus being the great high priest and how did that relate to their faith? And if that's true, we have a great high priest too. That's what the scripture says. So what does that mean for us in this present time? What does it mean for us as believers today to have a great high priest? Well, let's, let's think about those two things. Let's think about what kind of high priest Jesus was. The author of Hebrews knew that the Jews who had become Christians in that first century knew all about Old Testament priests. They knew all about it because they'd grown up with it, they thought about it, they, they remembered the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice for their sins once a year. They remembered what it was to have this great high priest who dealt with their sins. But here in Hebrews, he's saying, remember what kind of high priest you have. You have a greater than an earthly high priest. You have a high priest who was a perfect high priest, an exalted high priest. It says in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
We've got this high priest who passed through the heavens. Now, he's referring to the ascension, isn't he? Because he's saying, you remember when in Acts chapter 1, um, let me just go back to that for you. Acts chapter 1, I want to read you verses 1 through 3, and then I'll skip down to verses 8 to 11. Acts chapter 1, it says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom. And then you go down and see what he said to them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. When he says that Jesus is the high priest who's ascended into heaven, who's passed through the heavens, he's referring to the ascension. The ascension was that final triumph of Christ after those 40 days where he's been resurrected, he's visited with his disciples, and then he's been raised up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So that exalted position. You remember when James and John came to Jesus that time and they said, Lord, we, uh, or the mother came and she said, Lord, I've got a request of you. I want my two sons to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand. And you know why that was, because the right hand and the left hand were those places of exaltation. Those were the places at the head table. You know, when you go to a wedding and when you, you look around at the seating in the whatever, the hall or the venue after, you see all the wedding parties sitting up at one big head table. And you see their mom and dad, perhaps, their best man, the maid of honor, matron of honor, you know, all the groomsmen. You see a lot of people sitting up there at that head table and you say, those are the places of honor. That's how we honor those that have come to the table, you know, that have come to the wedding to be part of this. Well, at the right hand of the Father is this exalted place of honor. And when Jesus was ascended into heaven, that's where he went, to that right hand. He was exalted as Lord of Lords and as the true Redeemer. And he was the one that it was, it was saying everything that Jesus has done has been affirmed by the resurrection and then now him being raised to the right hand of the Father, he's being exalted to this highest place of honor because of his work of redemption, because of what he did for us. That resurrection and that ascension were proof that Jesus' work had been accepted and it was perfect and it was done and finished. So what kind of high priest do we have in Jesus? We have one who's better than any earthly high priest because he's been affirmed by God by being raised and ascended up to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father.
the highest place of honor there is. And then Jesus was the high priest who had been appointed directly by God. You know, the earthly priests were from the family of Aaron. The earthly high priests were the family of Aaron. And then they were chosen uh, from that family to take it on. And the point is that nobody ever chose the role of high priest for themselves. It was chosen for them. They were acted upon. They didn't choose saying, I think I'm going to grow up one day and be high priest. No, not like King Charles knowing, you know, he was going to raise up one day and when his mom died or gave up the office, he was going to be king. It's not like that. The high priest was going to come through the family of Aaron and then he would be appointed. He wouldn't designate himself as high priest. He would be appointed to the office. Jesus is the one who himself was appointed by God, uh, God the Father. It says in chapter 5 of Hebrews, because, um, in verse 3, because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, as for the people, so also for himself. No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, Jesus was appointed to the office. He was appointed by God the Father. You know, when you choose, when the, the government or when the president and his party chooses nominees for the Supreme Court, what do they do? Well, we know that first of all, they, they think about who they want. And then they compose a short list. And then they vet those people on the short list. And then they bring those people on the short list into the Oval Office. And when they sit in there with the president, then the president interviews them. And he talks to them personally. And finally, he says, okay, I nominate this person to be Supreme Court Justice or Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Well, you see, uh, these, there is a sense where the guy doesn't appoint himself. He doesn't say, I'm going to become Supreme Court Justice. He's chosen for that. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Even Jesus was appointed to his office and he was appointed by God the Father. He was appointed to this office to be our savior, to be our high priest, to be our king, to be the prophet, priest, and king, to fulfill all the offices. Jesus was chosen to perform these himself. And you know, it says he was not a, a high priest in the line of Aaron. Jesus was a high priest, but not in the line of Aaron. You know, there were 12 tribes, remember? And it was the Levitical tribe where the priests came from. Jesus wasn't from that tribe. Jesus was from David's tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was not qualified to be a high priest according to the earthly order of things. He wasn't from Levi. He wasn't from Aaron. He was from Judah. So he couldn't have been high priest according to to the way things normally worked. But what happened? God the Father came along and he said, 
I'm going to appoint you from a different high priesthood. I'm going to appoint you from a special high priesthood. I'm going to appoint you. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this shadowy person that we know very little about. Melchizedek is the one introduced to us in Genesis 14 where Abraham meets Melchizedek out and Melchizedek is identified as the king of Salem and the priest of God most high. Melchizedek was this special priest that we don't know anything about his ancestors and we don't know anything. There was never an, a successor appointed to him except Christ. Melchizedek was one of those high priestly orders that God just designed that said, there's no predecessor, there's no successor except Jesus. Jesus is the one who's appointed to this. And the reason was because Jesus would never have anybody take his place. Jesus is the high priest who would never be replaced, who would never have somebody come after him. Nobody could ever come after him because he's an eternal high priest, because he lives forever to make intercession for us. You see, Jesus was the perfect high priest. He was the ascended high priest who was glorified and given honor. He was the high priest that was appointed by God alone, and he was appointed to a special high priesthood that was the priesthood of Melchizedek, not that particularly just of Aaron. He was the only one and he'll never be replaced. But Jesus is also, it says, a sympathetic high priest. In chapter 4, verse, verse um, 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who is sympathetic because he has taken on humanity, because he's become man. He was the God-man. He's the God-man, the mystery of Jesus' person. The one thing we know is that every high priest could sympathize with his people because he was human. You know, every high priest had his own sins and weaknesses just like we do. And every high priest knew his own sins and weaknesses. And he experienced loss and suffering in this life, just like we do. He lost family members. He suffered hardship. He went through difficulties. He was human. So every high priest could be sympathetic to the people. When he got up to pray for them, when he got up to officiate for them, when he walked into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on top of the mercy seat and thought about justifying the people from their sins, he knew that that blood was covering his own sin. It was covering his sin because he too shared their humanity. But think about Jesus as the perfect high priest. He's the God-man. He's the one who understands us because he's human, because he was man. He understood our sufferings. He understood what we went through. It says he was tempted in all things like we are and yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted like we are. He understood what it was like. You know, um, we're reminded that Jesus suffered. It says he was made perfect through suffering. We think of the cross. 
We think of all that he went through. But we think, we, we forget sometimes that Jesus suffered to a greater extent and to a greater degree than we do because he was the God-man. Jesus would have suffered more because of sin. Um, you know, even the Bible talks about how even uh, an ordinary guy like Lot that sometimes we don't think very much of because he lived in Sodom and put up with the sin of Sodom every day long, all day long. He moved toward it, it says, and then he moved in it, and then he became kind of a leader in Sodom. And yet it says that Lot's righteous soul was vexed by the sin of Sodom. If an ordinary guy like Lot can be bothered by sin, think how much more Jesus was bothered by it when he lived in this world. Think how much more difficult it was for him to see the betrayal, people turning their backs on God. How hard was it for him to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have grabbed you like a mother hen and drawn you under my wings. Think about how Jesus grieved at the sin and suffering, the betrayal and the loss that is part of this world. Our high priest is sympathetic to us because he feels it. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like for people to turn their back on him. He knew what it was like to suffer the ultimate loss when his father turned away from him on the cross, when he became sin for us. You see, Jesus suffered like no one else so he can understand our suffering. He was the greatest priest of all because he was exalted. He was appointed by God himself. He was a part of a greater priesthood through that of Melchizedek, and he was sinless and sympathetic as a high priest for us greater than any other. So if we have a perfect high priest, what does that mean for us? If we have this perfect high priest, what does that mean for us and how does that affect us and how we live? Well, it means that when we have doubts and fears, our high priest understands. He knows what it's like to be human. He took to himself, it's our confession says he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He understands what it's like to be human. So he understands about our suffering. He understands about our fears and our doubts. It means that Jesus understands our temptations because he too was tempted. And yet he was tempted more intensely than we are. Think about the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan directly and think about what it was like for him to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and to suffer that and uh, want to give it all up, you know. And Father, can you take this cup from me? Would you take this cup from me? Jesus suffered. He knows what it's like for us to suffer. And if you have a great high priest like Jesus, you know he can sympathize with your struggles and yet never rationalize sin. We have a perfect high priest who's never going to tell us it's all right to do wrong. He's never going to rationalize something and 
say what you're feeling is wrong, but your motives may be right. You know, what you're doing is wrong, but your motives may be right. No. He's never going to rationalize sin. He's going to be faithful. And he calls us to be faithful to him. And having a perfect high priest means that you can go to him anytime you want. You see, this is what's different. Think about how the earthly high priest could only go in the, to, to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies one time of year on the Day of Atonement for that short period of time when he walked in there with the blood of the sacrifice and he carried out the ritual there. You see, he could only go in once at a time. But you can go anytime you want. You can go anytime you want and as often as you want and stay as long as you want. You remember Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always there to make intercession for us. He's always there to be our intercessor. And we can, because he's our intercessor, what does it say in Hebrews 4? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go to him for our timely needs anytime we want. We can stay in his presence as long as we want because he's there for us. He's our great high priest. You know, Jesus, some part, I think it was Paul Miller who has said, that Jesus is the most dependent, was the most dependent person that has ever lived. He prayed about everything. He prayed all night before he chose his disciples. He prayed in the garden before he went to the cross. His regular habit was to get up early in the morning and go to a quiet place, to a lonely place and pray. Because you remember, the disciples would get up every morning and they couldn't find him. And they'd have to keep going around until they found Jesus and there he was over in some quiet place, out away from other people, and he was praying, and he'd been there for hours. That's why they said, Lord, we don't know how to pray, so you teach us how to pray. We don't even know how to pray compared to you. Jesus prayed about everything. So with Jesus as our high priest, we know we can bring to him everything. We can go to him as often as we want. We can stay as long as we want in prayer. We can bring to him everything in our lives. It doesn't matter. You know, my mom used to say, she'd say, well, I can't pray about that. That's too small a thing. I can't trouble God with that. And I said, you can tell him anything. You can tell him anything. You can go to him as often as you want. You can go to him whenever. And nothing is too small to bring to him. He cares for you. He cares about your life. You have a place to go. You can go because you have an advocate. You can go because you have a sympathetic high priest. You can go because you have an elder brother. You can go because he is the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. That's why he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek because he's going to live forever and he's going to pray forever. That's what he's doing for us. Now, you can come boldly because Jesus, who is the Son of God, and He's opened the way for you. You know, aren't we always looking for people to open the way for us? 
kind of smooth things. So if we're in a new business, we want somebody to come along and help us get started. Uh, I've noticed that in the papers this week, there have been several articles on Jeffrey Epstein. All kinds of people went to him. You know, he was the um, despicable human being who was involved in uh, sexually abusing young women. And yet, even after he had been convicted of those crimes, influential people would go to Jeffrey Epstein and they would say, all right, I've got this, uh, I've got this thing I want you to do for me, or I want you to smooth this way for me. I want you to make this path with these lobbyists or with this government official. Jeffrey Epstein thought he was kind of a, a fixer of sorts. People went to him like the, an Israeli prime minister, the co-founder of LinkedIn, Woody Allen, Larry Summers, the former secretary of the treasury and president of Harvard. All kinds of people went to Jeffrey Epstein because he would smooth the way in front of them. That's what we human beings want to do. We want somebody to go in front of us and to make the way easier for us. But our great high priest is greater than anybody on earth because he is the one who made the way for us as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That's what the scriptures say. He's the one that makes the way for us. You remember when Christ was crucified on the cross that one of the last things we notice in that description is that not only were the graves opened and some dead people were raised up to life and it went into the city, but it also says that the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, which was several inches thick, that was to keep the areas separate because that was the holy place where God's presence was earthly, in an earthly way there in that temple. And yet what happened at the crucifixion? That curtain was torn from top to bottom and it was God that tore it. And it was symbolic of the fact that now access was granted to every believer to come into the presence of God. We have a perfect high priest. We've got the best high priest. We've got the greatest high priest of all, a sympathetic high priest, a priest who yearns to hear from us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what kind of high priest we have. You know, you don't have to be afraid when you go into the presence of God. You know, remember how afraid Isaiah was when he had that dream, that vision of God? You remember how afraid he was? He was in the presence of God and the, and the presence of God made him so afraid. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. In other words, woe is me, I'm gonna be disintegrated because I'm a sinful man and I'm here in the presence of this perfect holy God. But we don't have to be afraid like Isaiah. The earthly high priest was afraid he was afraid, you know, the week before the Day of Atonement, the earthly high priest kind of went into seclusion. He had all his meals brought to him because only holy food could be brought to him. He couldn't be, he, he was not to have anything unclean because if he had anything unclean, he couldn't enter into the presence of God on the Day of Atonement. 
So for a week beforehand, he was in seclusion. He bathed himself before he went into the Holy of Holies. He washed, he had pure white linen, brand new that had never been worn before. Pure white linen. He cleaned his body, he put on those clothes, he went in and he offered for his sins. Then he went in again, he offered for the sins of the priests. Then he went in again after cleansing himself and putting on white linen. And he went in for the sins of the people. Cleansed. He couldn't have anything unclean because he was afraid. If I have anything unclean, I can die. And you remember what they did do to the priest before he walked into the Holy of Holies? They attached a rope around his ankle and they tied that because if he was unclean in any way and he would be offensive in the presence of God, God might strike him down and his body would be in there and they couldn't leave a decaying body in the presence of the holy God, they would have to pull him out. And they couldn't enter in because it was a sacred place where no one but the priest, high priest could enter. So they couldn't go in there. So the only thing they did was they tied a rope around his leg and said, okay, if he's struck down, we can pull him out. Can you imagine what the fear of that would do to you? I mean, you're going in there, am I perfectly clean so that I'm not going to be struck down? You know, but we don't face that because look at Hebrews 4.16 again. Let us draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can go in boldly into the throne of grace, not because of you, not because of how good you are or how clean you are, but because of how perfect Jesus is was your high priest who died for you. You can go in because the perfect high priest has come in not with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, but with his own blood, the perfect pure lamb of God. He was the one who went in with his own blood and it was sprinkled on the true mercy seat and therefore he cleansed us from all sin. You see, you can go in prayer into the presence of God with confidence and boldness, not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, when the writer to the book of Hebrews rehearsed all these things in these two chapters and others to follow to his believing first century Hebrew Christian friends, his point was, if we have a great high priest like this, then how can we ever go back to an earthly high priest, to a bunch of shadows, to a system that was supposed to point just to Jesus? If you have the kind of savior and a kind of high priest, this kind that we've talked about, and you have this kind of access to the throne of God, why would you ever go back to anything else? Because you see, this is the kind of savior you and I have this is the kind of high priest we have. We could never go to any other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you for this one who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for this perfect savior, this perfect uh, prophet, priest, and king. We thank you for this one who loved us with an everlasting love and has drawn us with cords of compassion. 
Now we pray, Father, that we will never turn our backs on you or on your son, the Lord Jesus, and that we would always live for you in every way. For we pray in the name, Father, the name of your son, Jesus, the holy, uh, harmless, undefiled Savior of sinners. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and we're going to turn to our closing hymn this morning, Hail Thou Once Despised Jesus, number 176. Let's stand and sing. 